0: Good morning, Greenville Oaks. We're glad that you're here. Uh, What a wonderful day, Mother's Day, especially after last Sunday when we did the family dedication time and we committed ourselves to supporting mothers and fathers raising these children. Uh, And now we celebrate who God has made our mothers to be and and what a blessing they've been. hope you've got your Bibles with you. We're going to turn to Acts chapter 21, the passage uh, we just read a moment ago. And we uh, going to be looking at that this morning. We're going to see what Paul did in a very trying situation, demonstrated how highly he valued unity in the body of Christ. <clears throat> you ever found yourself in a situation where you felt compelled to do something that you really hadn't planned to do, but circumstances just came about and you just felt like you had to do that. Years ago, when I was a teenager, this is way back in the dark ages, I, I typically would every summer go spend a few weeks with, uh, with some of my cousins who lived down on the coast of Texas between Houston and Galveston. And we spent most of our days going to the beach and looking for waves big enough to do some surfing. This was a Sunday afternoon, and we had been to church that morning, had lunch, and we were about to head to the beach. And just as we pulled up to the highway from their little development, you would turn left to go to the beach, but just as we pulled up to the highway, there was a siren that went off down in the little town they lived near. It was at the fire departments, the fire siren. And they were volunteer firefighters there in the little town. So instead of turning left to go to the beach, we turned right and went to the fire department. We pulled up just as the guys were getting on the truck about ready to head out toward the fire. And we got out of the car and they said, jump on the back. And my two cousins jumped up on that, that ledge at the back of the fire truck. And I'm sitting there thinking, Okay, this isn't what I signed on for. I mean, I had no training. I had no experience. Never done anything like that before. But I had a choice. I could either sit there in an empty fire station by myself all afternoon and who knows how long, or I could get on the truck. So I jumped on the truck. And let me tell you, standing on the back platform and holding on to that little bar is not as easy as it looks when you see it on television or movies, okay? Especially if the guy driving the truck is driving like he's going to a fire, which we were, okay? We're driving and I'm starting to have all these Walter Mitty-esque kind of uh, visions in my mind about how we're going to go and we're going to have this huge raging fire at a building or a home and we're going to get this powerful hose out and I'm going to have this hat on and the jacket and, and we're going to put that fire out and save people and all of this kind of stuff and I've just got all of these ideas and we pull up and it's a grass fire. Now, grass fires are nothing to be trifled with. You've been watching the news out of California lately. You understand those things can be devastating if they're not kept in check, all right? It's an important thing to do, but it wasn't exactly what I was envisioning when we were on the way. Instead of giving us a hat and a cap or a coat and this huge fire hose, they give us burlap bags that have been soaked in water. And we spent the afternoon walking around, eyes burning and and lungs choking from the smoke, beating that fire out with wet burlap bags so that we can save the rest of the countryside and the houses and stuff like that. It was miserable. It just made me realize when you respond to a fire alarm, you never know how it's going to turn out. That was indelibly impressed upon us last month down just a few miles from here in the little town of west texas when suddenly there was a fire at the at the fertilizer plant that eventually resulted in an explosion in reading about it and hearing about it there were a number of firefighters that participated in fighting that fire that I'm sure, had no intention of doing that when they got up that day. One of them was a captain in the Dallas Fire Department who happened to live in West and was there when the fire broke out. He responded to the need. Another one was a, a, a guy who, who lived in a, in a town not too far from there who was a volunteer firefighter in that town who happened to be in West that day taking classes for his EMT certification, emergency medical technician. And he heard the fire alarm and he responded. Both of them, along with several others, lost their lives fighting the fire. What causes somebody to do that? I don't know, but we can be thankful that they did. The uh, ABC News reported one of the one of the firefighters there at West, Pat Grimm, saying this, all their actions, the EMTs, the civilians, did delay the fire enough so that the people in the rest home could move from the front to the back of the building. And we were able to evacuate those people. There could have been forty lives lost if they had not delayed the fire. The family of twenty six year old Jerry Chapman in a statement issue said they believed that he died a hero, that his faith in God and fellow firefighters gave him the strength to lay down his life for others. Isn't it amazing that people have the courage and the devotion to duty to go into a situation where they realize they may never come out alive, but they do it to protect and to serve those who are in harm's way. Do you ever think about who you would be willing to voluntarily choose to lay down your life for to protect? Who would you be willing to go into a situation that dangerous in order to care for them? What what is it that you hold so dear that would cause you to do that? Well, the truth is we find the apostle Paul doing something like that in our passage today. He's not fighting a literal fire, but he is going about to put out a fire. He's been traveling all over the Mediterranean world, and he's been teaching people about Jesus, telling them the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. And he's, he's had wonderful, wonderful results. God has blessed him tremendously. And now he's decided it's time to go back after many years, to go back to Jerusalem, to the mother church. It's not a trip he's making easily, and it's not a decision he came to lightly. He knows he's going to face considerable danger when he goes back to Jerusalem. He isn't the only one who understands that either. In the very beginning of chapter 4, when he was on his way down toward Jerusalem, he stops in a city called Tyre. And while he's there, well, look at verse 4. If you've got your Bibles open to Acts 21, through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. They understood what might wait there for them. And then he, he goes anyway and he's, he gets to Caesarea in verse 10 says, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. There was no misunderstanding the danger of this enterprise that Paul was undertaking. He realized, and other people realized What might happen? But he was determined he was going to go anyway. Look at verse 13. Then Paul answered their pleadings. Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready to not only be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul got it. Paul understood. But he said, I got to go. This is something I have to do. Regardless of the danger, whatever the outcome might be, I've got to do this. Now, what was it that was so vital, so important, so significant that Paul was determined to go regardless of the cost? Well, in a word, unity. Paul understood there was a fire brewing with the believers in Jesus, and it was threatening the unity, the oneness of the body of Christ. And he realized how devastating that would be if an explosion ensued and blew the whole thing up. Paul understood that unity was something absolutely vital to the growth and health of this fledgling new movement called Christianity. He also knew how Jesus felt about unity. He had heard them talk about the prayer Jesus prayed the night before he died We've got a portion of that prayer recorded for us in John chapter 17. Verse 20 of that chapter, we read that Jesus is saying these words, My prayer is not for them alone, his disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You see, Jesus understood how critical unity was to the future of the movement he was leaving behind. The reason he thought it was so important, well, he says so in the last line there, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Unity of the believers matters to Jesus because it's gonna make all the difference in the world and whether people really believe that what we have to say, the message we share with them is significant, is real or not. When people are united in Jesus, it has a powerful impact on others. And when we're not, it has a powerful impact too, but it's not the kind that we want. Earlier that same evening, Jesus had said in John 13:35 by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another see Jesus knew the world will know we're his followers if we love each other not if we agree on everything not if we address all the issues and deal with all the controversies and solve all the problems and, and, and see everything just exactly alike or get all the answers right according to someone. That's not what's going to convince the world of our message. Jesus said the way you're, they're going to know you belong to me is if you love each other. If there's anything that marks the state of our world today. It's an increasing absence of love, even civility that people have toward each other. You, you hear news from around the world, and there's a civil war in Syria, and there's revolution in Egypt and other North African countries, and there's, there's chaos over in the Middle East, and there's, there's all kinds of hostilities going on in, in Asia and Korea and other places. But you don't have to go out to the world to find that out. You look right here at home. I mean, just look at Washington, and you hear all of the rancor and all of the the, the animosity, all of the vitriol that comes out. It seems like all anybody's interested in doing anymore is just tearing the enemy, the opposition down. All they care about, it seems, is just blaming somebody else, and nothing ever gets accomplished you don't even have to go to Washington. You look right here in our own community and you see examples of, of road rage and fights in schools. And hey, did you catch the, the, the video, YouTube video that went viral about what happened down in Duncanville High School with the kid and his teacher this week? There's a good abs- example of civility at work. I mean, the things that happen, it just seems like everywhere you turn, nobody... Nobody gives anybody any civility, much less loving people. And the, only, the only silver lining in that dark cloud is that the darker the world gets, the lighter, the brighter the light of Jesus shines. Because when we love each other the way Jesus intends for us to, people look at that and go, how, how does that happen? It is so foreign to everything else that was going on in the world. You see, being united in love was of preeminent importance to Jesus. And if we're going to represent him to the world, it's got to be just as important to us. It obviously mattered to Paul. And there were some things going on that caused him great concern. You see, the followers of Jesus were attempting to do something that really had never been done before. The world, in some ways, was very much like it is today. There were people in all different places, from all different backgrounds, all different cultures, all different nations and languages and, and, and traditions and, and religions. And, and everywhere you went, there was a group of people and they had, they had kind of their own religion. There was a God of this country or this city or this city-state. And if you, wanted to, if you wanted to join them, you had to be a part of them. You had to just become like them. Even the Jewish nation even though they didn't believe in all of these different gods, they were thoroughly moder- uh, monotheistic. Even they said, but, but that God, the only God is just our God. He's not for anybody else. And Jesus came along and he radically challenged that whole idea, that whole convention, that whole worldview. He said, no, God, the God that I know is the God of God all people. He wants everyone to come in. He doesn't want anybody to be lost. And that was totally different than anybody would ever heard of before. Jesus called all people to him. He sent his followers to everyone. And he didn't send them out and say, okay, you go and convert all of these people to becoming Jewish people. Convert them to Judaism." and then they can become followers of Jesus. No. You, just, you don't have to go through Sinai to get to Calvary, he said. You don't have to become a follower of Moses to become a follower of Jesus. Just trust in Jesus and what he has done for you. Now, that was very different. And there were some people that really, really struggled with that. Hey, Paul was not telling the Jewish people to blow off the law. He wasn't telling them that they just needed to get rid of the, the law and all of the traditions and customs that they had had for generations. He just said, you can't, you can't ask or expect or require people who aren't Jewish people, who don't come from that culture and that heritage that you have, to become Jewish. It's not God's plan. Paul encouraged all of those who were his countrymen to continue to do things and keep the law as a way to honor God just as they always had. He just said, you can't take that what you're doing to honor God and impose it, force it on people for whom it wouldn't be an honor to God. It would just be a burden and an obligation. That's where the problem came in. There were some people who were saying, well, that's just not going to work. If you don't keep the law, as well as trusting in Jesus, you're abandoning the will of God. You're turning your back on generations of people who have devoted their lives to being God's people, and that's just not right. They were adamant, you can't love God, you can't be a follower of Jesus without accepting Moses. So when they hear that Paul is teaching something completely different than that, it really, really gets them upset. It really bothers them. <clears throat> maybe, maybe it was because they were so upset and they were so emotional. Maybe it's just because, because they wanted to combat what they were hearing, but they were misrepresenting Paul. <clears throat> we see how that was in down in verse twenty of Acts twenty one. Paul has gotten together with the church leaders. Paul, this leader of the church among all the various nations, gets together with the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, which was predominantly Jewish. And they, Paul tells them what incredible things God's been doing. And verse 20 says, when they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed It's not just God doing stuff out there, Paul. God's doing wonderful things right here in Jerusalem. We've got thousands of Jewish believers, and all of them are zealous for the law. They've been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. Now, the truth is, that's not what Paul was doing. We never read of Paul telling Jewish people to forget about the law. We never read of him slamming the law and saying, oh, that's just old-fashioned. You just got to get past that. You just got to get over that. That's not what he did. He honored the law. He advocated that. He just said you can't force it on people that that's not their culture, that's not their custom, that's not their tradition and their background. You know, it's real easy to misunderstand what's really happening when we get upset, isn't it? It's real easy to misrepresent what some people are doing who don't do things that we think is best. Apparently, that was happening in a major way here in Acts 21. So the leaders there in the Jerusalem church and Paul get together to try to figure out what to do here. In fact, that's exactly what they asked. We're verse 22. What shall we do, they asked. How do we handle this? How do we put out this fire before the thing blows up? And they came up with a plan. It wasn't an elaborate plan. It wasn't really complicated. It was pretty simple, really. They said, look, Paul. Here's an idea. We've got some guys over here, four people, four men. And they're, they're taken a vow. We, we know it was a Nazarite vow. It was, it was a time-honored thing that the Jewish people did as a way to, to be very devout, devote themselves to God. These guys have done it. They said, look, why don't, why don't you take a vow like that with them? And, in fact, go ahead and pay their expenses too. You know, you're going to be all in on this thing, Paul. Because that, they reasoned, would demonstrate to these people that he wasn't dishonoring Jewish customs and practices and, and, and the things that they cherished. Far from it, he was actually participating in that. He was upholding that. He just wasn't requiring non-Jewish people to do it. Now, that's kind of a step. Paul could have responded to that and said, what do you, how dare you ask me to do that? I'm not the problem here. Those people are. They're the ones that are spreading lies and rumors and false accusations about me. They're doing things that shouldn't be happening, and you're coming and asking me to bend over backwards for that? What do you, how do you get off doing that? You need to be going and getting those people and straightening them out. That's what you need to be doing. Paul could have done that. Certainly seen a lot of people in disagreements in churches that have responded that way but he didn't. Paul understood what they were trying to do, and he wanted desperately to keep the the church united to put out that fire that was getting going. And so he did exactly what they suggested. He did what they recommended him to do. Now, because he made such a a concession. He acquiesced so generously to that. That should have solved everything, right? No problem anymore, right? (laughs) Not necessarily. Not exactly what happened. You see, it really doesn't matter what you're actually doing sometimes. If somebody's lathered up enough about it, if somebody's upset enough about it, they're going to find something wrong with that too. And they did. Basically, they saw Paul in the temple. They knew he was taking this vow, but they saw him in the temple one day. They had seen him earlier in Jerusalem with this guy from Ephesus, his friend, his companion from Ephesus had brought with him. And they just assumed that they had this guy in the temple, this Gentile in the temple, which was not permitted. Wasn't true, manufactured, but they assumed it was true. And so they started yelling. And you know, if if you really want to get people worked up, just start yelling something. They said, look, this guy's going all over attacking the law of Moses and Jewish people and the temple, none of which was true. But something doesn't have to be true for somebody to say it. It's rather ironic that they're accusing Paul of attacking them when in reality, the only one attacking somebody is they're attacking Paul. Well, they put two and two together and came up with about nine. Not really uncommon when people are upset about something. You probably won't be surprised at the result. You tell people today that something that they hold dear, something they treasure is being attacked and people get, get hostile real quick. That's exactly what happened here. They started yelling this about Paul and suddenly people come running from all over to join in the attack got a mob mentality going on. They drag Paul out of the temple and they start beating him and probably would have beat him to death, except the commander of the Roman guard gets wind of what's going on. And one of his first orders of business all the time is to keep peace, not let any riots get out of hand. So he brings the guard and they come and confront Paul's attackers and they back down. And they take Paul into custody, and the guy wants to know what's going on. He says, why are, you, why are you beating this poor guy to a pulp? What did he do that's so horrible? But as typically happens with the mob mentality, with hostile people, there's there's not, there's not an answer. Some people say this, and some people say something else, and it's just chaos. So he decides he's going to get Paul out of there, probably mainly to keep the peace, to quell the riot, but maybe also to, for Paul's own protection, kind of take him into protective custody. They're about to haul him off, and Paul is thoroughly disappointed. Paul didn't come here just to get beaten to a pulp. Paul came here. He risked what he was risking because he knew it was so important to defuse this problem among the believers in Jesus. And he hadn't done that. To the contrary, he not only hadn't brought peace and harmony, it seemed to be worse now than it was before. So Paul's not one to give up easily and he asks the commander of the guard if he can speak to the crowd and he permits it. He's granted permission to do that. And Paul starts talking to him in Aramaic, their own native language, and they stop and they listen. Listen to the, he tells them his story. He tells them about what happened on the road to Damascus. And they're just listening very quietly until he gets to the point where he says, And Jesus told me to go to the Gentiles, the nations, and they erupt again. So the commander takes Paul and he puts him in prison. And there he sits, alone, locked up, beaten up. And not only are things not better, it's worse than it was to start with. And I imagine he felt totally defeated. Not exactly how he envisioned the whole campaign of going to Jerusalem to go, I'm sure. You ever been there? You ever been in a situation where you you wanted to help bring peace in a situation that was very hostile, very difficult? But it seemed like everything you tried to do just blew up in your face. Every effort you made, instead of bringing calm and peace and harmony, it just seemed to lather things up worse. And you sit there. Totally alone, feeling totally isolated and totally defeated. Well, that's where Paul was. That's what was going on in his life. You know, it happens in our lives not all that infrequently. Maybe it's happened to you at work or in your neighborhood, in your community where you live. Maybe, maybe it's happened in your family. It, it may even happen at church in your experience where some people get real bent out of shape about something and they start accusing these other people and those people are, are bent out of shape about being attacked and they start accusing right back and it just starts escalating. I know it, it's a hard place to be. Truth is, most of us have had some experience somewhere with that. No one wins in those situations because in the final analysis, people are way more important than issues. You see, we think if we can get all the issues resolved, if we can get all the questions answered, if we can get all the things nailed down, if we can get all the controversies settled, if we can get all of the answers right, then it's going to all be okay. And even if we could accomplish that somehow by some miracle it wouldn't take very long, then we'd have a whole new set of questions and controversies and issues and problems because been, we, that's just what we do. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, though, I believe that when we learn to love each other in spite of those differences, people will understand that we have something to give them that nobody in the world can when we see things so differently yet still love and accept each other the way Jesus intends for us to, people will come to Christ and God will be glorified. My mother is 87 years old. My next birthday, I'll be 60. To this day, One of the things that she loves the most is when all her boys and their families come together. Mamas just love having all their chicks together. When we were kids, I know this will be a shock to you, but we didn't always get along. There were times that We had some real humdinger fights. And sometimes, I guess when we were younger, they were pretty mild and we kind of got over them pretty quickly. Sometimes they were more significant and it took longer. We don't always get along. But there's nothing that warms her heart. Like when we come together in spite of our differences, in spite of us, some of us being as different as night and day, when we come together loving each other and caring for each other, that's a mother's heart. It's a parent's heart. It's the heart of our Father in heaven. And he calls us as his children in his family to do that today. Let's pray together. Father, thank